Well, we'd like to say good morning to everyone over in Quakertown. I miss you guys a ton. I hope you're having a wonderful morning. I will see you later today. Uh, today is our first campfire prayer night of the summer. Uh, if you don't know what a campfire prayer night is, uh, it's kind of complicated, so I'll explain it to you. Uh, we have a campfire. We pray, and it happens at nighttime. Uh, make sure you get, come out to that. Uh, we'll have a great time about getting connected with God and getting connected with each other. We'll have uh, roasting hot dogs over the fire. We'll do some s'mores. Uh, we'll do some, all sorts of fun stuff there. Uh, just really spend some good time in prayer as well. And a reminder to all college-age uh, students or all uh, graduating high school seniors, uh, we are kicking off our summer home group. That's just for you. That's going to be through the summer. Uh, we're going to kick that off tonight, so we're going to be uh, having the campfire prayer night from 6.30 to 8.30, and then we ask all of you in uh, that college-age group to stay afterwards as we uh, get to know each other and have some time of just uh, uh, having some fun and figuring out what we want to do uh, this summer. Uh, and for all of you in Souderton, if you're kind of interested by that campfire prayer night and you're like, oh, that sounds like a lot of fun, come on out. We have plenty of hot dogs. In fact, uh, we will have s'mores, and not just s'mores, uh, we kick it up a notch. We put Reese's peanut butter cups if you want, York peppermint patties. I mean, we don't mess around. We're serious about our s'mores, so come on up there. Well, we are starting, as I said, we're starting a series called Billboard Top 10. And so what we're doing is we're looking at the top 10 verses. We're making a top 10 list. These are the verses that you'd find stitched on a pillow, uh, on a t-shirt, tattooed on your arm. Uh, it's the kind of verses that people call their favorite verses or they like to quote over and over again. And so here's the first thing we need you to know. If for some reason you disagree with our list... And you see a verse on there, you're like, how did that make the top 10? Or if you see a verse, you're like, why didn't this verse make the top 10? Well, here's the deal. That's how top 10s work. Uh, no one is, is it never is everyone happy or satisfied. And so uh, what I encourage you to do is complain to Charles. So you can do that. <laughs> and so what we're doing in this series is we're, we're taking a look at these verses. And for some of them, we're just reminding ourselves about them. We're refreshing ourselves. And we're kind of just uh, taking a moment to just... Uh, just relive the truth of those verses. And for some of them, we're taking a new look at them and kind of seeing if whether we have the right look on that verse, whether we have the, the accurate uh, definition of what that verse is really saying. And so that's what we'll be doing this summer uh, throughout the next 10 weeks. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Philippians. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can follow along on the screens. Uh, you can take out your phone or your tablet and go to the Bible app or the Bible Gateway app, or you can use one of our Bibles. Uh, in Sourdown, we have them in the seat racks. In Quakertown, we have them in the carts in the back of the room. If you don't own a Bible, take it home. It's our gift to you. We believe that reading the Bible has the potential to impact your life. Take it home. It's our gift to you. So here's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be reading about Philippians 4.13. But before we read that, and what we're going to do is we're going to read that verse and some of the verses around it. But before we do that, I want to talk to you a little bit about Bibles. And I want to talk to you about versions of Bibles. And it's a little bit important for what we're going to be studying today. So when we read the Bible, we're reading it in English. But it wasn't written in English. Uh, for a large part, it was written in Hebrew and Greek. Uh, and so what happens is, is that there are different versions of translations from those original texts into the languages that we read today. 
And so you might get a version like the ESV or the NIV or the King James Version. If you don't know what I'm talking about, never heard about that, don't worry about that. All I'm telling you is that there's different versions of translations for the Bible. And the reason that I want you to know that is because I'm going to read from a version that's different from the version that we have here at Calvary Church. So uh, we usually read from the NIV here in Calvary Church. I'm going to read the verse on its own from the ESV, the English Standard Version, because it sounds similar to the way that I think most of you have heard this verse before. So when we read Philippians 4.13 in the ESV version, it says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so here's what we're going to do with this verse, and here's what I'd like to do with the verses as we go forward into the summer with the rest of the verses in the top ten. I'd like to approach them with three questions. I really would like us just to look at these verses with three questions. The first question is, what's going on? The second one is, what's being said? And the third one is, what does it mean? What's going on? What's being said? What does it mean? And I want to go in that progression. And the reason I want to go in that progression is because I feel that oftentimes we jump to step three and we give this self-taught application of what the verse means. We take it in isolation and we say, this verse must mean this to me. And while sometimes that may work out, oftentimes if you do that, that is a dangerous path that can arise. Um, that can take you to the wrong conclusions. So we're going to follow that progression of what's going on, what's being said, and what does it mean. And so with that in mind, let's read from Philippians 10. We're going to read from verse 10, and we're going to go all the way to verse 18. Philippians 4, verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Well, that sounds a little bit different than what we just read, right? Oh, that's kind of important, foreshadowing Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable, acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So what's going on? Well, Philippians is a letter. Paul, who used to be a man called Saul, is writing a letter to a church in a town called Philippi. And so Saul has an encounter with Jesus, and his life is completely changed, and he becomes Paul. And Paul is the most influential person in church history. And so he goes around and he, and he ministers to different churches uh, around him. And so what he does is that he writes letters to these different churches. 
At this point in Paul's life, Paul has been arrested and he's in prison. He's writing this letter from prison. And so he's taking the time to write to the Philippians. And so when he writes to the Philippians, what is he doing? Well, one of the things that he's doing, what we just read is, he's thanking them. He's thanking them. They sent him aid. They sent him Epaphroditus. They sent him help. And so he takes this time at the end of his letter to say, thank you. Thank you for doing this. And he wants to make sure that they know that this is a thank you without strings attached. This is not a letter that was receiving from someone who's saying, thank you for your past support. And here's the need that we have now. And I'm not criticizing those letters. In fact, uh, we have sent some of those letters at Calvary Church as well. But that's exactly what Paul's not wanting to do. He wants them to understand that this thank you is just a thank you. I'm not in need of anything. I don't need anything. And he tells them, you know what, there were times that you helped me and no one else could help me. And then there were times that you weren't able to help me. And I am thankful for you regardless of the circumstance. And so as he's expressing his gratitude, he takes this moment to teach them a lesson. As he's expressing this heart of thanksgiving, he takes this moment to teach them something new. And so the background of what he's writing is this heart of gratitude to these people who have given him help and support, and he's in prison. He's in a pretty, for what most people would think, a dire circumstance. And he tells them something that he thinks that they really should know. So what's going on? Paul is thanking them, and he's teaching them at the same time. Which leads us to the second question. What's being said? What is he actually telling them? And in order to tell you what's being said, I think that we need to start with what's not being said. Because here's where the confusion around this verse lies often. This verse sometimes becomes the jock verse. It's the verse of athletes. Okay? When I was in high school, I threw shot put and I threw discus, and I liked to lift weights. And I remember the first time I tried to max out on a certain weight that I had not benched before. Music's going, and it's got like probably some dance music, club dance music, goes boom, 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 just getting myself psyched up. And then over and over and over again, I'm repeating in my head, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Put the chalk on my hands. That explains why I'm clapping. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I get on the bench, I grab that bar. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I grunt and I push that bar off the, the rack there. I lower it to my chest. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Help! <laughs> I had to call out to my spotters as they lifted that bar off of my chest. What happened? One, I wasn't ready to lift that weight. Two, I was treating Jesus like the force from Star Wars. <laughs> Jesus isn't the force from Star Wars. <clears throat> and so when I'm going into that situation with the belief that what this verse is saying is that I can do anything that I desire or I can do anything that I'm faced with because Jesus is the strength that I can call on in order to push that bar off. What happens when that bar doesn't come off my chest? I'm faced with a few realities. Either one, 
this verse is empty. That must be it. This verse actually is empty and it means nothing. Or, two, I must not have Jesus. If I can't get through this, and the verse says that I can do all things, I must not have Jesus. That must be the reason why. Or three, I just might not have enough faith. That must be it. I just didn't have enough faith to get through this. Because this verse says one thing, and this is how I am calling on the power of this verse, so I must not have enough faith. Or, what really happens, I must not be understanding what this verse really is saying. And I put my own definition of this verse into the Bible, and I'm not taking a look at what the Bible is actually saying. This verse was never meant to be a Jedi word of wisdom. It was never meant to be a word from Yoda. There's something much deeper in here. There's something much deeper. What's being said is something so much greater. And you see, when I approach the verse like I approached it when I was in high school, trying to lift the weights, what ends up happening is I am actually living according to an American culture standard. Because in our American culture, we have a saying that says, you can do anything if you put your mind to it. And what happens is, is we took, if you can do anything, if you put your mind to it, and we made it biblical, and we turned this verse into that. And that's not what this verse is saying. Not really. Not really. And if I arrive at that conclusion, then I'm potentially arriving at the exact opposite conclusion of what Paul intended. You see, if I'm operating under this assumption that I can name it and claim it, I can do whatever I desire because Jesus is on my side and I have this, this force that I can do whatever I desire, I can do this, then when life goes either the ways that I don't expect it or I'm prevented from doing it, then I suddenly become trapped in a response of disillusionment. And that can take on different forms. Either I can become the waiting dreamer and this is a lot of young adults, these are kids in college a lot of times, like, okay, things may not be going the way that I want it, but eventually they will. I just, my time has not yet come yet. And so I live this life of being naive and, and this disillusioned life of, okay, I'm the waiting dreamer. I have not yet had it arrive, but it will eventually happen. I just have to wait for my time. Or even more than that, I can become the blame shifter. Because after I get past that waiting dreamer point and I realize, okay, time's kind of running out, then I start to shift blame. And I'm like, you know, the reason I don't have this is because of this person, or the reason I don't have it is because of that person, or because of this rule, or because of this economic uh, influence in my life, or because of this whatever it is. And I start to shift blame, and I start to say, this is the reason why I can't do that. And even worse, sometimes I shift the blame to God. And when I start to do that, I become angry and I become bitter. And when I become angry or become bitter, sometimes what I do is I change from blame shifter to fixer. 
I decide to take things in my own hands. And when I become the fixer, what I decide to do is, okay, I'm going to make this verse happen on my own. And so if I am not satisfied with my marriage, okay, I'll end it. I'll get a new marriage. If I'm not satisfied with my job, I'll end it. I'll get a new job. And I jump around from one place to another, regardless of the cost to myself or to others, and I try to make things come out the way that I want it to be. And so I leave a path of destruction and pain that I've inflicted on others, and I ignore the entire time the pain that's happening inside of me. And if none of those work, then I end up being the defeatist. I end up being the defeatist, and I suddenly look back on my life, and I'm like, okay, life isn't what I thought it was. Life stinks. There's no point to it. I become depressed, and I become hopeless. When I live life thinking that everything revolves around my desires and my happiness, and that the whole point of the Bible is to make me happy and to give me all what I desire, and that I can just name it, and then I will get it, and I will name it, and I will claim it, and this verse is applied to that, that I can do whatever I desire because I have Jesus on my side, then I will ultimately arrive at one of those outcomes. I will ultimately get to one of those scenarios. Why? Because when it's all about me, I simply echo the words to the song that was played at the beginning of this service, the Rolling Stone song. I can't get no satisfaction. Either I'll never get what I'm looking for, or when I finally get it, it's not what I thought it was. When I'm just chasing my own desires, my own wants, my own dreams, and that's the only thing that matters in my life, and I'm using Jesus as just some sort of weapon or tool to get to my dreams or desires, I will end up in a place where I will have no satisfaction. To live with Philippians 4.13 as being a verse of conquest leads to disillusionment. Philippians 1.13 is not a verse about conquest. It's one of contentment. This verse is about contentment. Look at what he's saying. Paul is saying this. He's saying, I have learned to live for Christ in wealth. I have learned to live for Christ in poverty. I have learned to live for Christ in all of this. Whether free or in prison, in comfort or in pain, Paul has learned to live in Christ in all circumstances, not begrudgingly or in some masochistic way, but contented. Because Paul has learned the secret. He says, I've learned the secret. He says, come in, let me tell you the secret of contentment. The secret of contentment is this. Contentment does not depend on circumstances. It depends on Jesus. What is he saying? Contentment does not depend on the circumstance of my life. It depends on Jesus. So if you become the CEO, you live in gratitude and contentment to Jesus. If you don't become the CEO, you live in gratitude and contentment for Jesus. If you find that spouse, you live in contentment and gratitude to Jesus. If you don't find that spouse... You live in contentment and gratitude 
to Jesus. If you have children, you live in contentment and gratitude to Jesus. If you don't have children, you live in contentment and gratitude to Jesus. I'm not negating any pain that some of those losses bring. What I'm telling you is, is that the desire, your number one desire, cannot be those things. They have to be Jesus. And it's interesting, if we were to look at the word that Paul uses for contentment, this word really implies sufficiency. It's really a word that, that, that is capturing this image of sufficiency. He's saying you don't need anything else. Jesus is sufficient. What your heart is longing for is Jesus. What you can't seem to find, it's Jesus. So what's going on? Paul is expressing gratitude to a church in Philippi. And he takes that opportunity in that Thanksgiving to teach them a lesson. What's being said? Paul tells them he has found the secret to contentment. It's Jesus. So what does it mean? What does it mean? It means be satisfied in Christ. Nothing else matters. I can face anything. I can go through anything. Why? Because the only thing that matters is my love for Jesus. What truly matters is Jesus. I am so in love with him. I am so in love with him that no matter if I'm rich or poor, married or single, have children or do not have children, I am working or without a job. I am healthy or I am sick. I am free or I am in prison. Nothing matters because I am satisfied because Jesus is sufficient. I am content because I have Jesus. My joy, my hope, my life is built on nothing more than Jesus. He is my very breath. That's the secret of contentment. That's the secret of contentment. It's Jesus. Being so in love with Jesus that you are so consumed with that love and the truth that you have that love, that you securely have that love, that nothing else matters. And this is a radical statement by Paul. This is radical information that he's giving. And not even for some of the thoughts or, or, or conclusions that we arrive at today. He's giving a radical statement for his time. For probably a different reason than what you would think. You see, Paul is writing to a group of people who also would have been in contact with other people who would have said that they also knew the secret of contentment. Paul is writing to a group of people who would have been influenced by the Stoics. The Stoics claim to have found the secret of sufficiency, the secret of contentment as well. But for the Stoics, their message, their argument was based on detachment. Love nothing and you will not be disappointed. That was the message of the Stoics. Love nothing, and you will not be disappointed. The ultimate goal was one of indifference. For the Stoic, 
The desired outcome was self-sufficiency. What Paul is saying is so radical to his culture. He is not calling for self-sufficiency. He is calling for Christ-sufficiency. That is huge. It is completely counter-culture to what's going on around him. He is not calling for indifference. He's calling for love. He's calling for love. And this is important for us to grasp because we tend to, to live according to one of two rules. Either we live according to the American dream and we try to fill the holes in our life with as much stuff and as much accomplishments and as much relationships as possible. And so we stuff it into our lives trying to close up that gap inside our heart. Or we live according to the standard of the Stoics and we try to strip everything away and live this life of simplicity. Because if we have nothing, then that is the only key to us having happiness because nothing can be taken away if we have nothing. And neither one is the message of Paul. I mean, look at what it says in Philippians, again, in Philippians 4.12, it says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. It's not about circumstances. It's not about stripping everything away and having nothing. The contentment, the secret of contentment is Jesus. And this understanding, this truth, is not something that Paul just makes up. In fact, it's something that Jesus himself said. In John chapter 6, there's a story where Jesus feeds this huge crowd of people. There's a crowd of people in front of him, and, and there's thousands of people there, and, and they're hungry. And so Jesus goes, and, and this little boy brings his lunchbox to Jesus, and he takes out five loaves and two fish, and, and Jesus uses that to feed all of these thousands of people. And a little bit of time goes by, and, and those people, some of those people that were there at that time, they find Jesus, and they come over to Jesus, and Jesus is like, the only reason you're looking for me is because you were fed. And so they say to Jesus, okay, great stuff that you're talking about. Show us a sign. And Jesus is really chill at this point when, when, when they say that, because if it was me, I'd be like, really? You want a sign? Go look at lunchtime. And they say, they start to lecture Jesus, like, you know, when Moses was here, Moses gave us a sign by, he gave us this manna, and what they're doing is they're referring to a story in the Old Testament of when Israel was being led by a man named Moses, and they were in the wilderness, and God provided these, these wafers, this bread kind of wafers for them to eat. And so they're saying, Moses gave us manna, and Jesus is like, whoa, 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 the bread of heaven didn't come from Moses, it came from God. And they still don't get it, and they say, okay, well then give us this bread forever, always give us this bread. And finally, Jesus makes a declaration. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, Then Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Notice, he doesn't say, I give you the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go. They're saying, always give us this bread. He goes, I'm right here. What you desire, what you need, I'm right here. This is it. It's me. What you're seeking, what you're so desperate for, it's me. That's Jesus' response. And the key is to not 
have my focus so centered on everything that Jesus can give me, but be centered on my increased desire and love for him. I don't just need what Jesus can provide. I need him. The key to satisfaction is increasing our desire for Jesus. Increasing our desire for Jesus. It's all about love. It's all about love. What we love, we prioritize. So if I love money more than I love justice, I will take advantage of anyone to get that money. If I love my job more than I love my family, I will sacrifice my time with my children in order to get to where I need to be in my job. What we prioritize reveals what we love. The decisions in our life reveal what we love. And what we need to pay attention to is the order of that love. You can love Jesus. Do you love him more than anything? Is he number one on your priority list? Is he number one on my priority list? What we prioritize is what we believe brings us satisfaction. See, the answer isn't to love those things less. It's not, the answer isn't that you are to love your family less. The answer isn't that you are to love your job less. It's not about loving those things less. It's not bad to love your job. It's not bad to love your family. The answer is not to love them less. The answer is to love Jesus more. The answer is to love Jesus more. But how do you do that? Because... I can tell you to love Jesus more, and I can tell myself to love Jesus more, but it's not like I kind of just flip this switch in my brain and I'm like, okay, now I love Jesus more. Uh, how do you do that? Like, how, how do you fall in love more with Jesus? Here's where it gets crazy. Our love for Jesus is a response. We didn't initiate that love. That's awesome. That's awesome. Because since we didn't initiate that love, we're responding to a love that was shown to us first. How do we become more and more in love with Jesus? Remind ourselves of how he loves us. Remind ourselves of how he's shown up over and over again in your life, in my life, and loved on you in amazing ways. You know what I want you to do? For the rest of the summer, one time a week, Take aside five minutes in the morning, night, whenever you want to do it. And I just want you to write down, just jot it down real quick, a way that Jesus has shown you his love. Once a week. If you want to do more, go ahead. But for me, I will fail at that. So I'm going to do once a week. If you don't know where to start, start with the cross. Start with the cross and be overwhelmed with how amazing that love is. You don't deserve that love, neither do I. And yet it was given to you. Do you really, really understand how much you are loved? Do you understand how much 
You are loved. Remind yourself of that love and remind yourself in a whole new way. Because when you realize how much you are loved, your love for the one who is loving you will grow. Once a week. Once a week, just remind yourself of that love. That's the whole key. When the object of our primary love, when the source of what we are focused on, when the source of our satisfaction, when the primary list in the top of that order is Jesus, nothing can take that away. Nothing can take away that love of Jesus. Everything else that I could put my satisfaction in, everything else that's high in that order, everything else can be taken away from me. My job can be taken away from me. It just can happen. I could walk in tomorrow and they'll say, you're done. We didn't like your sneakers. <laughs> Something can happen to my children. Something can happen to my health. All of those things are fleeting. The love of Jesus will never leave you. Put that as number one on your list. And when I do that, when I put my hope in that, I begin to trust the one who loves me. I begin to trust Jesus. And when I begin to trust the one who loves me, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Because then I can trust that whatever it is that I'm facing, the one who loves me is not leaving me. The one who loves me is still there with me. The one who loves me will go through that with me. The key to this is that this verse is not about conquest. It's about submission. It's, not about, it's about contentment. It's not about achievement. It's about submission to the one who loves me. It's a truth that allows you to obey God regardless. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know about the people you've lost. I don't know about the medical diagnosis. I don't know about your job situation. I don't know about your marriage situation. I don't know. What I do know is that the person who loves you is going nowhere, and you can put your trust in him, and that you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. No matter what situation may arise, he's not going anywhere. He's with you. What's going on? Paul is writing a letter to the church in Philippi, and he's saying thank you. And in that thank you, he's using that as an opportunity to teach a lesson. What's being said? The secret of contentment is Jesus. The secret of contentment is Jesus, regardless of any circumstance you face. Be content. Jesus is sufficient. What does it mean? Regardless of what situation God has placed you in, Jesus is sufficient. You can trust Jesus as you go through any and every circumstance God places before you. Jesus is enough. Let's stop being self-sufficient and let's start being Christ-sufficient. Let's pray.
Lord, it's easier for me to say those words than to live out those words. It's easy for me to kind of just read those truths and acknowledge those truths verbally, but when things happen in my life and things kind of don't go the way that, they're, that I hope they would go, it's hard to cling on to those words and what they mean. So Lord, I ask you that you would just reveal your love to me again. That you would just reveal the truth of that love to me again. That I will be reminded over and over and over and over again just how much you love me. And that I can trust you no matter what. Jesus is sufficient. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.